0: Welcome to the Non-Breaking Space Show from Austin, Texas. I'm the Internet's Christopher Schmidt, and on today's show, we're discussing self-autonomous vehicles, or sometimes commonly called self-driving cars. Joining me as co-host is Simon St. Laurent, the content manager at Lynda.com. On this episode, our guests are Dr. Sean Brannan, professor from the Department of Mechanical and Nuclear Engineering at Penn State. Also, Paul Schmidt, the director of automated vehicles at Mass Robotics and invited expert at the White House on autonomous vehicles. This show is one Simon and I have been planning on doing for a while. We really wanted to reach out to find experts to find out what is really happening in the space of self-driving cars and also try to figure out what the impact a self-driving car in our society will have to our digital lives so I hope you'll find this conversation as interesting as we did. Before we get started, some things I'd like you to know. The UX Design Newsletter is a weekly list of articles, tutorials, and inspiration handpicked by me. Sign up at uxdesignnewsletter.com Now the best links of the week sent to your email. Set it and forget it with a non-breaking space show newsletter. So whenever a new show is ready, you'll be notified right in your inbox. All you have to do is sign up at newsletter.nonbreakingspace.tv. Did you know that we have a YouTube channel so you can watch our episodes raw and unedited at youtube.com slash non space show. If you hear about a site or resource listed in today's episode, chances are you'll find it as a link in the episode's show notes, which you can find at non Be sure to follow me, Christopher, on Twitter at Telject, T-E-L-E-J-E-C-T. As always, thank you for telling others about non-breaking space. And be sure to follow us and subscribe us in iTunes uh, to catch the next episode. Now, on with the show. We're welcoming uh, a great guest today for the Non-Breaking Space Show. Uh, our first guest is Dr. Sean Brannon. He's a professor from the Department of Mechanical and Nuclear Engineering from the Pennsylvania State University. Also, he's affiliated faculty to Thomas D. Larson Transportation Institute and Director of the Intelligent Vehicles and Systems Research Group. So welcome to the show, Dr. Brandon. Hey there. Hi, everybody. Glad to talk to you today. And uh, it's okay if we call you Sean. Of course. Okay. And joining us as well is uh, Paul Schmidt. He's the uh, Director of Automated Vehicles at Mass Robotics. And he's an invited expert to the White House on autonomous vehicles. I guess we should also make that was the previous administration, and uh, (laughs) we're we're still waiting for the uh, invite Mm -hmm. to the newest... Administration, by well, mailboxes. Either, Either way, I was humbled to be asked. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting okay. me. Well, We're happy that you're here. And then uh, uh, joining me is my sometimes co-host, is Simon St Lawrence. Hi, Simon. Hi there. Great to be here. Cool. Awesome. And Simon, you are? Uh, I think- uh, I'm a content manager at
1: uh, LinkedIn Learning. I mostly focus on uh, on web topics, but I like to
0: get into all kinds of tech, so should be fun. Yeah, so awesome. Yeah. yeah, this is a show that um, Simon and I have been wanting to do for a long time, and um, just and, and the you know the nature is talking about autonomous vehicles because there's just a lot of talk about autonomous vehicles in the press, and sometimes the press get things wrong <laughs> and or they're not really up to date on the technology up there. So, uh, so like Sean, if you could just give us a state of autonomous vehicles right now, that'd be great because uh, you know my audience, like I said, like they're kind of web engineers. And we heard companies like Apple and Google, which we know, you know, from being web developers, we know them pretty well. But uh, now they're developing autonomous vehicle technologies. And then we also know Uber because we use Uber a lot because it's, we can't park downtown in, uh, in Austin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in Austin, not all anymore. And then, um, then there's Tesla, which has the uh, self-driving car feature, but uh, which now is autopilot now enhanced autopilot feature. So. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, I just want to see if, Sean, if you just give us the lowdown on what the state of autonomous
2: vehicles is? Sure. Uh, for those that don't know, we've been working on autonomous vehicles uh, in the automotive industry for probably about 100 years now. Um, and I say that from the context of uh, most of us actually don't control many parts of the vehicle that we think we do. A good example of that is the throttle. Uh, when you hit the throttle body, uh, many people probably envision a big old linkage that goes from your pedal into the engine, and uh, that disappeared long ago. Uh, Computers today have been controlling the throttle body for decades, and uh, one consequence of that is significantly improved fuel economy and the ability to do some neat stuff like cruise control and uh, engine management, engine diagnostics, uh, all sorts of things, and that's just one aspect. But where we're at today really is an evolution in the technology over time. Uh, In the industry, we've defined this evolution in stages, uh, stages one through five. And uh, we really got to about stage three in probably, I'd say, middle 80s, maybe early 90s, to where uh, vehicles were doing many of the subsystem functionalities um, without our intervention. And I'm saying things like, the automatic transmission in your car and the throttle body whenever you're doing cruise control. And we thought we would evolve into a technology that would work alongside humans, and uh, you'd basically click a button on the highway, it would drive you for a little bit, and then it would hand it off to you when things got dicey, and uh, you'd take over. And the reality was that that turned out to be a lot harder than we thought, and so starting about about five years ago, maybe 10 years ago, um, really motivated by uh, defense funding through uh, DARPA challenges, DARPA Grand Challenge, DARPA Urban Challenges, um, there was a big push to just skip over uh, that level of autonomy to where fully autonomous vehicles started becoming the main focus. And that really ironed out many of the core challenges of the the field, particularly understanding the needs for information management, advanced sensors, the use of map registration and simultaneous mapping while we're driving and navigating the world. Um, how to track objects as they're moving around. And so these are all technologies that have converged and merged. Um, the costs have come way down, and to where uh, my understanding, talking with industry colleagues, is that um, many of our modern vehicles are essentially software updates away from being largely autonomous in the context of of uh, hitting a button, be able to drive. Um, the challenges today. There still remains some pretty hard um, technological challenges. I think we'll get into that in the discussion. Um, and there's some interesting ethics and legal challenges as well.
3: Uh, I love the intro, Sean, great job. Um, just, I mean, you started off with a very broad question. <laughs> so there's, a, there's literally a thousand different ways that we could, we could go with that. But I, I, think to, so I think, you know, Sean did a great job of bringing us to, I think, where we are today. I, I think the big picture to me of, of where we are today is it's very exciting. Uh, there's a, a number of companies that are actively working on this technology, and I think, and I think maybe we want to initially just lay some groundwork to prevent confusion because it's very easy to get, get confused. Okay. Um, I, um, like the, the Tesla system, for example, the autopilot system. Mm-hmm. You know, I would classify that like a, as a SAE level three system. Okay. Uh, Sean, maybe we could debate that, but um, and. What, what that is is you know the, where the, the vehicle does take you know, longitudinal lateral control of the vehicle, but the driver is still needs to be aware of of this, the situation what, what's happening in, in the vehicle. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas a level four, and level five uh, systems, and depending upon the type of level four, you know the the driver can you know, can be really uh, out out of the picture totally. So mm-hmm. um, so I think so. Uh, um, and I think what, what Sean was saying earlier with, with the DARPA funding and with, with uh, um, enabling, uh, you know, pushing, for, uh, the research and, and development to level four and level five is, is really exciting and, and very powerful. And I think that as Sean was saying, that took away a lot of the technical challenges for me. One of the biggest ones is that for level three, there's actually two drivers in the vehicle. If you think about it, right. Yeah. There's one, one of them is human. Um, and so there has to be some type of really good communication between those two drivers, mm-hmm. and and, uh, and if one of those drivers happens to think that the other driver is a level five, <laughs> <laughs> um, you, know, you can get into some problems. So um, and, and I think and it's that those communication of the human driver knowing what the the non human the AI driver is, is doing is not doing and the that the user interface challenges there mm-hmm. there There's... Very significant technology challenges there, Mm -hmm. and I think so. Jumping that uh, to level four and level five Mm -hmm. um, is the way that a number of companies are going. Um, And I'll just just summarize. I think from I think from an exciting picture of where we are today, uh, from what I've seen, um, we're seeing some companies that are just starting to announce that they have. A level four type technology. When I say level four, it's limited in some way, like geofenced mm. uh, you know, to you know, a certain region, um, uh, maybe certain weather conditions. Mm. Um, but it can take maybe full, uh, full driving, uh, over, uh, full driving task. Mm. We're seeing some companies that are announcing that, you know, they will have, you know, uh, off- offering rides with, you know, these type of vehicles uh, in certain cities, you know, Within six months or so, yeah. Um, we'll, we'll see, <laughs> um, but that's that's very exciting. I, I think Neutonomy uh, is, is one that said that in Singapore they'll, they'll start offering rides, yeah. Um on the short term. But again, we'll see and that. So I think once that happens, I think they here in the United States they're operating in Boston, so I wouldn't I would expect them to start offering rides in Boston not too far after that. Okay. And I think the big news from Uber. Last week, and they've got 24,000 vehicles, uh, Volvo vehicles that they want to employ. Yeah. Uh, that's a lot of capital that will be sitting around uh, <laughs> if they don't put that to work very quickly. So I would expect to hear some news yeah. Yeah, from them shortly. Okay. Okay. I'll leave it at that. Yeah. So.
0: So, so level five, then, would just be like people just get in the car and you do it doesn't matter where you go. I'll I'll, I'll
3: take a short stab at that, and Sean, jump in. I I can see you're eager to jump in. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I think level five, I honestly don't think that we will see for several years. The the folks in the industry that I talk to say, I mean, a level five would be like a vehicle where you go to the dealership and you buy it, and it doesn't even have a steering wheel on it. It doesn't have pedals in it. You know, it just, you, you, you tell it. You know, there's an app where you tell it where to go, and it, and it takes you there. Yeah. We're, we're you know, at least several years away yeah. uh, from from seeing that. Uh, so that's why I think level four. That's where you and that's there's significant technology problems associated with level five. I and mean, you're yeah. working in all kinds of weathers and all kinds of uh, road conditions. There, there's a lot of challenges there. Yeah. So that's why you see companies breaking down that large problem into attackable. Problems. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll limit it to this geographic area. I'll limit it to this this type of weather condition. is that? Mm-hmm. Okay,
2: so, so. yeah, ditto on that. I think uh, the way I describe level five to to my students when I'm training them to to try to implement some of these technologies is level five is the chauffeur. You hop in the car and it takes you there. You don't need a driver's license. You don't you don't even need to be in the car. You could put your kids in there and it should be able to take them to wherever. Um, and as Paul mentioned, there's there's some really hard challenges with that, not just with reliability and weather, but also, you know, we, we, we're we going to s- slowly start stepping into some of the ethical questions rather quickly, I think, in this discussion is, uh, you know, say you have a, uh, you know, your wife is pregnant and, uh, or uh, you happen to be pregnant and you need to get to the hospital and it's a snowstorm. And I've had the joy of having two children, um, both in the middle of snowstorms, and Know, having a car that would refuse um, refuse operation for very legitimate and ethical reasons, um, and then also have a situation where the driver might be um, not licensed or trained enough to operate the vehicle, and yet you get into emergency situations. And so it starts to come a question that, uh, as vehicle engineers, we really start having to tackle questions about ethics and societal choices and um how to assist people, how to make really large life and death type of decisions, even though really what we've been trained to do is move a vehicle around safely. And uh, that's, that becomes really hard. You know, The domain space that we're working in is really growing faster than our capability to learn it. And so we find that, um, I think in all of our fields, I think Paul would agree that our arms are getting larger and larger and all of the different disciplines we have to hug together and make work, and so a lot of the the core challenges, you know, go well beyond vehicle engineering, and go deeply into ethics and psychology, uh, human factors, um, civil engineering, um, even the the ability to manage and, and control traffic congestion with autonomous vehicles. That's a that's a very difficult and open question right now.
0: Well, like with level five, like you talk about it being the chauffeur chauffeur, but even with level four, though, if you know with with even with Tesla's autopilot future you know if if that was you know main but mainstream and popular enough like like how how do you see this affecting like normal traffic patterns and, and so like that
2: so you know level four on the level of uh, the tesla vehicle you know i'd say not only highway driving to where high speed driving very well uh, confined environments uh, very short um uh, short but infrequent uh, major decision points, whether or not you need to make a an on ramp or an off ramp. Not long term durations of tough decisions, for example, navigating you know complex pedestrian traffic. Um, I think that's on its way, and already with traffic patterns, uh, there is the potential that um, we have to start thinking about it. One of the places that we know that we want to go rather soon is the ability to start platooning vehicles on the highway to increase vehicle throughput. Um, it has well, some what huge implications. When do you mean platooning? Oh, okay. So platooning is um, the ability to have a lead vehicle coordinate. Usually there's there's levels of platooning, um, usually start to coordinate uh, the throttle and brake inputs from a lead vehicle to the vehicles that follow. And so many of us would like to tailgate, um, especially if we're in a tractor trailer, would like to tailgate the vehicle ahead of us to just push the wind out of the way. I mean, we could get a, like a 40% or better even uh, fuel economy improvement by not having to move the air out of the way. And so, if we can try to get nose to tail on those those vehicles, what we call a platoon, um, it offers some significant economic advantage. Um, that forty percent is is could be the difference between an uh, average performing and the best performing um, uh, business models for all of the trucking companies out there. The Even. challenge
1: that. Even just in a traffic jam, that's what I want is to just be able to say, follow the car ahead of me. I don't, you know, we're doing five miles an hour. I don't want to have to pay attention to this.
2: Bingo. Yeah. And there's there's a name for some of this. Um, It's it's an evolution of the cruise control technology. Cruise control, we set a speed and and the vehicle goes. And then we now have evolved to automatic cruise control, ACC systems, which use essentially radar systems. Um, Some have some variation on that, but basically radar systems to slow the cruise control setting down. So that if we're in stop and go traffic, we can follow the leader. We're still responsible for you know core brake and throttle function, but we're not really taking advantage of the close space keeping to remove the aerodynamic load. Then there's the what we're tar- when we talk about platoons, we're starting to talk about what's called cooperative um, uh, adaptive cruise control (CACC) systems, for short. And in that case, we're starting to talk about vehicles that are operating nose to tail, and the lead vehicle is communicating with the following vehicles its brake and throttle inputs. And they're very carefully coordinating the, the leader follower behavior so that the leader can't essentially lock the brakes on any of the following vehicles and have this disastrous, you know, multi-vehicle pilot. And so where the technology is going, where we talk about level four, is uh, these type of emergent behaviors, merging behaviors, where, you know, if we have these large platoons, of let's say, you know, 30 to 100 trucks going in a platoon down the highway, it very much looks like a train of, of vehicles, and many of the rules of the road that we currently live by um, might have to be modified. You can't essentially disassociate a platoon at the, you know, the intersection of, you know, two seventy and the Beltway in DC, and suddenly let all the trucks try to navigate that. I mean, it would be probably the perfect storm in creating, you know, a, a multi-vehicle uh, traffic jam that would take most of the day to dissipate from then on and so from the standpoint of policy we then have to start thinking about the rules for platoons they're going to be different than those for vehicles we do have to have rules about when they're allowed to associate and disassociate uh, we'll probably have to have some type of change in the infrastructure we'll have to have different types of lane geometries to allow us non-platooning drivers sometimes to get around the platoons we'll have to train people how to accept those on the roads and and develop Um, acceptable behaviors on both ends. So it's going to be interesting. And when we're already starting to talk about traffic, I mean, the throughput on on these platoons, some people estimate could be three times as many vehicles or more. Um, But if that's going to come at the cost of having maybe 10 times as many traffic jams in the beltway, that's something that we need to think about and, and plan for. And it's difficult to start Analyzing these individual behaviors at a level of complexity of an entire infrastructure network, Um, especially because the technologies themselves are evolving so quickly. That's fascinating. Sean, uh,
3: when you talk about uh, traffic patterns, Mm -hmm. my mind jumped more to what what the individual, uh, the technology, the developers are facing right now. And Sean, Sean, I think you've got a much, you know, a great, uh, bigger picture of you. But, you know, what, what my mind jumped to was some of the stories that I'm hearing from some of the developers uh, in terms of, when you say traffic patterns, like, um, you know, th- now they're actually testing on real roads with real drivers and, and other vehicles. And and you have to do that because they're learning things that you wouldn't learn on a, on a development proving ground. But, um, a few examples are like, they said that, you know, their vehicle is approaching, let's say, a very uh, busy uh, traffic circle or, I think in New England, they call it a rotary, um, uh, something like that. And it's and their vehicle is is you know it's tuned to be cautious. And as a result, you know it sees a vehicles driving by the circle continuously. It never enters the circle, <laughs> you know, for many minutes at a time. That's um, like a like I'll drive. It's <laughs> like oh, I gotta wait, I gotta wait. I gotta... <laughs> and so you know, in those type of situations, you know, you know, as a human driver, you are train to be you know, somewhat aggressive, get your nose out there, and that's kind of. At this stage, that's the opposite direction that they want to go. Another great example is like a four-way stop. You know, a heavily you know congested four-way stop. You know, you know where there's you know you know if there's you know cars at the other three you know places in the intersection, and you know you know and I know they never stop. You know they come they'll come to a you know but and and the the vehicles are trained to follow the traffic uh, uh, education was okay. you know where the vehicle must come to a full and complete stop. And so as a result, it just sits there for many minutes. And so so uh, we're learning interesting things about traffic patterns at, at intersections. Are you, saying, are you
0: saying that people don't follow the rules when they drive? <laughs> I find that i no,
2: <laughs> Paul's gassed. Paul's hinting at something here that, that I think many of us take for granted, that being a good driver on the road is is largely a question of learning psychology. You know, we cue off of the gaze point. We cue off of whether or not somebody's hands near their their head. You know, as they're as they're driving in terms of holding something next to their ear, or how many times they look in their rearview mirror. And as we get into these vehicles that do not provide these type of cues, it starts to become a question of how do we rely on an inference of awareness. Um, if I'm going to cross in front of a vehicle at one of these infamous four-way stop signs, I'm certainly going to make eye contact with the the human driver. Well, what if I what do I do if the driver's asleep and the vehicle's driving? I mean, do I make eye contact with the radar? How do I how do I confirm that I've been seen? And so the the psychology of driving, I think, is really what differentiates you know that that first you know year teen driver versus uh, a more experienced. Um, and perhaps safer driver just because we cue off of each other's emotions um, inadvertently and, and, and very subtly. Hey Sean, I've trademarked a,
3: a, a name for this. Instead of inference of awareness, call it a glance dance. I mean, that, that's, that's, that's what it is, right? <laughs> I mean, that's, I mean, like you're trying to merge, you know, you're trying to to merge into a lane and, you know, you get your nose in front of him and, and then they gun it. You, you look at, you know, are they looking at me? Are they going to give me a time of day? Yeah. And same thing like if you're a pedestrian. I mean, think if you know, I think you know, this, we should talk about how, how we um, integrate this technology into our everyday lives. And, yeah. you know, bring in these, having these vehicles in, in situations where there's intersections and there's pedestrians crossing. You know, as a pedestrian, you know, there's a vehicle that's, that's you know, that's coming down the intersection. You look at their eyes, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, you want to make sure that they're aware of that, that, of that of your presence, your existence, and that your intention to walk across the street. And uh, there's this glance dance that occurs, if there isn't any something on the other end to return that, that glance, uh, you know, that's yeah.
0: yeah so, it, like basically, is
3: there a glance happening
0: back and forth, and then also, you know, I also looking you know, to look to see the speed of the car, to see where the wheels are if they're turning. If they're like, you know, if they're hesitating a little bit, you know, and then that's where the aggressiveness comes in. If they're, if they're hesitating, they're like, oh, that, that's my shot. I have to go in because they're hesitating. They're allowing me to break in. So, yeah.
1: Well, some, something I've wanted for years, actually, before we got into the self-driving conversation was better information on the outside of cars about intentions. I live in a place that has, you know, seven way intersections. So somebody signaling left, what does that mean? Um, I also live on a passing, passing zone on a two lane highway. And if I'm signaling left to turn into my driveway and people read that as he's about to pass someone, you can get into some really strange stuff. Um, You know, maybe the glance dance becomes something where the intentions of the driver, whoever they, whether they're human or not, are actually, you know imprinted on the outside of the car through lights or through some kind of I don't know, cartoon face that's what we need?
3: No <laughs> I think I, I think you put your finger on it. I think that area is really ripe for research. I think there's, there's a lot of unanswered questions there and I think there's a significant opportunity for some solutions
2: Yeah, so I, I would second all of that and uh, and more I think as technology is growing we're, we're discovering ways to share information between vehicles, probably the 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 one pushed forward the, the the most aggressively is what's called dedicated short range communication or DSRC radios. And those are basically, one could think of them as really, really high speed internet um, with the trade off that you can have very fast packet transfer on the order of milliseconds rather than tens or hundreds of milliseconds for what we would normally consider acceptable on the internet. But the trade off is you have really small packet size. We're talking about here I am type of messages as you go around an intersection from one vehicle to another. Or from a vehicle to a stoplight, and what's challenging with these types of messages is is that, you know, not pun intended, but also somewhat unintended. They tend to be binary. They tend to be I'm here or I'm not here. And a vehicle has to assess whether or not to trust them, whereas humans, we are really adept at gauging not only the signal but the uncertainty in the signal. And that's something that's really hard to communicate. Um, you know, I've I've many people have driven behind someone and that just is constantly tapping the brake lights just lightly. And and there's no information there. Um, It's either on or off. And it it can drive people crazy um, in the sense of trying to understand how aggressive is this brake being hit. And in the age of autonomy, I worry that we may have the same problem that we have with with many technology mediated communications. Um, I'm thinking about the web and just about any other comment forum that you see at the bottom of a news article. When people lack the ability to provide subtlety when we, when we have limited data channels, we tend to turn our gain way up. Um, and there's a there's a joke in autonomy called bang-bang control. It's all on or all off. And I, I, you see that in terms of the discourse and, and commentary um, on many a website where people are either absolutely hating at each other or absolutely in love. And I, I often wonder with autonomous vehicles if we're going to face that same challenge um, when when autonomous vehicles or semi-autonomous vehicles or driver-assist vehicles try to communicate information to the human. Now, the advantage of that is technology can mediate the human experience as well. Um, we're starting to talk about things like augmented reality heads-up displays in vehicles, um, allowing us to look through A-pillars um, or put display systems on A-pillars so that there's no, no longer such thing as a blind spot. You know, to be able to look through a vehicle ahead of you, one of the the big challenges with these convoys we talked about is what do you stare at as you're going at, you know, whatever, 65 miles an hour down the highway and you're three feet away from the back of the tractor trailer. Um, Maybe we can make that tractor trailer partially transparent. And so when that trailer is making a decision to change lanes or something, we can actually see what information is driving that decision. So the challenge, I think, with the technology aspect of it is how do we bootstrap both of those um, capabilities forward? One is the human perception and interaction and trust, and two is, is the sharing of information itself in a way that perhaps might not be binary. You know, How do we put uncertainty in, in information that is inherently binary?
3: I like that solution, Sean. Uh, making the truck semi-transparent. Uh, my my vision was putting up movies on <laughs> on the back of the, the rig to <laughs> keep the driver behind in the thing. But, but no, I think that's a much better, nicer solution. Yeah.
0: But I guess I guess so too. Like, uh, how do you uh, test these devices? Like test this like platooning. Like like you would need to test it before you put it out there in the uh, in the real world, right? So they, so basically, are you building like robot cities? Mm-hmm
2: out there yes. and so yeah um m-city is a good example of that uh, colleagues at university of michigan are are focusing on um, you know low speed pedestrian arterial type environments um, highway testing is impl- implicitly taking place by many of the oems um, that are out there testing their vehicle primarily in highway situations um, the u.s government has designated 10 test track facilities um, around the country starting in january 1st 2018 to be designated autonomous vehicle proving grounds, um, implicitly it also means uh, connected vehicle proving grounds. But you're asking, you know, trillion-dollar question, which which comes down to not only how you test it, but how do you trust it? You know, what what should be the corner cases? Um, does a, a vehicle that claims to be autonomous on a highway have to work under a blinding snowstorm with iced-up roads at 65 miles an hour with you know two flat tires and a broken windshield? Um, Nobody would assume that that would be appropriate, but how far do you back away from that you know, dark night scenario to get to a blue sky scenario? If we have autonomous systems that only work when the sun is shining and the roads are clear and there's no traffic and all the lane markers are well painted, et cetera, et cetera, it, it, it becomes meaningless. And so finding the those edge cases that all manufacturers agree on and all regulators agree on. That's a real challenge. It's not sufficient to just take an autonomous vehicle out and have it pass a driving test. Because implicit in the driving test that we humans take is that we will learn. The driving test is just the minimum to get back out on the road and participate. And that's a very different type of driving test than one that is supposed to exercise the system's full functionality. And we haven't yet figured out how to do that. I think that's the fairest way to answer that is we we honestly don't know how to do that. Right. We have ideas and we can talk about that at length. We don't know.
0: Well, is it something like, I'm just going to throw this word out there. Like it's just, it solves all problems, but like artificial intelligence, like if I bought an autonomous vehicle and it would learn from me how I like to drive, would then it it could learn my psychology of driving and then become my unique vehicle for driving. Did you feel comfortable with that? <laughs> yeah, because
2: I totally trained it. <laughs> so would you be comfortable with somebody else's intelligence trained into it? What exactly <laughs> the same situation
0: I'm in right now where I don't like that guy who's driving. Up there.
1: Would your insurance company be comfortable with that situation?
2: Exactly. And, and I, I have a challenge. I know that I have trouble looking behind a rearview mirror. I'm, all the accidents and near accidents I've been in have involved me in a situation where I don't Tilt my head sideways to look around a mirror, and so certainly all folks have. Sean, (laughs) the mirror
3: is right in our eye
2: I I can train an algorithm to behave like myself. The thing is, what did I not train the algorithm to do, or what did I train it to do incorrectly? And so, the one of the we're getting into what it's called verification. How do we know that training actually occurred? And, and what we would like the algorithm to do is to speak back to us in some way, some manner, to let us know what was learned. Can you instantiate the learning into something that we as humans can understand? And so the verifiability of the algorithm is of immense importance, so much so that you know, many of the algorithms that people are promoting um, for learning on the road would never be allowed in aircraft. And honestly, you know, my opinion, the aircraft problem is much, much easier than the road problem. I mean, aircrafts don't have pedestrians that are going by them as they they fly through the air. You know, they don't have clearance distances from oncoming aircraft that are measured in, you know, maybe one tenth of the aircraft's width. That would be unheard of. Um, you know, we would be talking about Blue Angel type driving every time anybody was in the skies, if we wanted to compare it to what we routinely do as, as highway drivers or, or normal driving. Um, and so, you know, verifying what we learned and, and what artificial intelligence means is, is a really difficult problem. Um, and I think that's that's gets really deep at the core of what these algorithms are supposed to help with, but at the same time, they could hurt us as well.
3: That was nice. John, I, I'd summarize it in saying that, you know, we're struggling with defining how safe is safe. Yeah. Uh, you know, what, is, what, is that, what are those metrics? I mean, the, the metrics that most folks are, are throwing around is uh, humans are responsible for 90 plus percent of, of all accidents. And you know, we can talk about that number and, and how it was derived and so forth. But um, So that's the number that's kicked around. And so, you know, I think a general... Rule of thumb, I think that most folks would be happy with is well, as long as the vehicle is at least as safe as a human driver, but we should be able to set the bar higher than that. Yeah. Um, but again, how do we measure that? Um, and, I, and everyone in the industry is, is struggling with that. And so that's why you're seeing, uh, and I'm hearing companies just clamoring for um, facilities and areas to test mm-hmm. um, because, you know, absence of a clear answer to that, they're putting thousands millions of miles uh, on their, on their test vehicles. Um, And, and, and Tesla's using that and some other companies as, as the metric of we've driven this many miles without an accident. And there's a lot of holes (laughs) in that metric, but um, to be fair, you know, whatever metric that we come up with, there'll be holes
2: in in that. um, uh, that, If you could drive a truck through. (laughs) Well, I mean, let's, With experts on the the call here, let's talk about probably the biggest hole is that if we have a human behind the wheel that's intervening every time the algorithm makes a mistake and then we say, okay, we're not going to count that 20 feet that the vehicle drove as part of the 2 million miles that we used to train it, what does those 2 million miles mean? Um, If we we take out all the difficult situations because humans are intervening, if we if we include that and it misbehaves slightly, but then we retune the algorithm slightly to adjust for that misbehavior, most of us would agree that the testing of the previous 2 million miles might not be representative because that behavior that you just tweaked may have some unintended changes that were previously fixed that we just suddenly unfixed because we've we've tuned the algorithm slightly uh, to be slightly better under this one situation. So, you know, the verifiability of the algorithm becomes a big challenge. Um, most, this is the core IP of most companies. And so the algorithms themselves are closed off to external review. Um, I joke with Paul before, I think last time you and I had dinner together, we were talking about, you know, the, the limited space available for academic work in this area because the algorithms themselves are growing so quickly and in such a closed off manner that knowing what's under the hood, um, from a software perspective, that's that's actually what makes or breaks these companies. Um, and we're seeing lawsuits about that. We're seeing companies aggressively recruit um, engineers that have a good handle on what these algorithms do and mean. Um, but the verifiability of the algorithms ultimately is is, is the key the key test. Um, and so, the way that we're actually practically approaching it is. We use these rules on the road, these these data that we collect, to run simulations repeatedly. And then the the corner cases, the problem cases in road, we tend to use those to redefine the simulations. Um, So we can run, and I'm not exaggerating here, tens of thousands if not millions of simulations um, of vehicle behavior under particular algorithm cases. But we want to make those simulation cases count. We want to put them through their paces and define the worst case scenarios. And I think that's where a lot of the the interesting data gathering is taking place. It doesn't even have to be autonomous for us to gather that data. And so I envision probably about the next five or 10 years these OEMs are going to be operating these vehicles. A lot of it will be a hands-off case you know, basically collecting the information necessary, the maps, the routes, the human behavior, the the corner cases that that we need to think about that people may not have anticipated, and then coming up with elegant algorithms to test um, autonomy at increasing levels under these cases, and then using that to verify and certify the situations.
3: I I agree. I think for me, if I were to describe the ideal situation, you know, I I think all the, the companies are clamoring, as I mentioned, for, you know, how safe is safe. And I think if we had one, you know, uh, an agreed-upon standard um, and we could, you know, set some metrics up against that, I think if, I mean, let me, let me describe the situation. So, like, you know, insert your brand of vehicle, you know, Uber or, or whatever, you know, comes up to your door, you know, you some, some requested the vehicle on your app, Mm-hmm. Uh, you selected the driverless one, of course, because it's a third of it as expensive <laughs> as as the other option, you know, the, the drivered uh, option. Um, if the vehicle comes to the end of your driveway at your home, the door opens by itself, you look inside, there's nobody in there. Yeah. You know What would make you feel comfortable getting in the vehicle? Or even a better question, what would make you feel comfortable putting your children in? Uh, in, in that vehicle to, to have it take them to soccer uh, practice, probably free Wi Fi. <laughs> yeah, the Wi Fi symbol on the side. <laughs> yeah, um, or I mean, because right at where we are, it's going to be the brand of, of, of the manufacturer, and like you're talking about, Sean, you know, it's, it, that's they're going to be their their core competency um, that they're going to aggressively protect. But I think, what if we had something like a five star system? You know, like we do for for passive safety for airbags, and you know where the vehicle pulls up and you can see this one has three and a half stars, but, but this um, but this other one, this other app will send a four and a half. So, you know, people know four and a half is better than three and a half. And why can't I have five? Um, and I think if, you know if we had you know uh, an SAE or an independent you know standards organization or, or NHTSA or you know some uh, some organization to come up and set a standard. And I, I agree, Sean, I think it would have to entail like tens of thousands, you know, a million of these corner cases and that, that you can run, uh, there would have to be some way that you could run your algorithm against all those corner cases um, very quickly and, and with, with clear metrics on past conditions. Um, I think that's, that's what I think the industry would welcome with open arms and I think we, the general public, would of course, Welcome with open arms.
0: Yeah. Well, it's not, it's not like we just need a. It's just like a system, like you know, we can do four or five stars or whatever, like like how like Uber and Lyft have five star systems for drivers and, mm. and rating, you know, riders, right? So, you know, it just seems like you need uh, some sort of arbitrary rating scale and just get people hooked on. And if it doesn't work, and he's like, oh well, that was terrible. Yeah, you watching that. But uh, but yeah, but but you're talking about how people just show up to an empty vehicle and you just let, like it's some sort of like transformer one that, you know, like mm-hmm. robot or something like that. And, uh, but that, that kind of causes a question, like what type of, you know, industries or like, you know, niches that like can come up of, of having autonomous vehicles. Like one, we always assume like, I'll just buy a car. It's autonomous or I get an Uber. Is there something else that I like, like now we can, it doesn't matter where we're trying to drive to a place. We can just get into a car work on our phones or whatever like that does, does that open up new industries
3: absolutely I think we are just beginning to uh, to, to realize the potential there of the, the business models uh, that can occur um, I think I think in our minds we're thinking of like the, the Uber the driverless Uber type right. and driverless taxi type model. and we always seem to go to that one right away. Yeah, exactly but I think the fact that as you're mentioning the fact that that time in the vehicle is being given back to us, mm-hmm. so I think it, that opens up a wealth of industry opportunities. To that, in terms of the user experience, the, the experience that the user experiences <laughs> within that vehicle. So I think that opens up you know opportunities for like uh, mobile McDonald's, yeah, mobile fast food. Uh, you know, so like not only do I want to get to my destination, but you know I'm hungry. Yeah. <laughs> and I could, you know, I'll have, you know, I'll have the time, right, you know, grab the burger, um, uh, uh, soccer, I, I, I like this idea, uh, soccer, M-O-M, uh, mobilizing our minors, so, you know, have, have a vehicle that uh, pulls up, so, you know, you've got, you know, Sean, you know, your three, your two little ones will have to go to soccer, uh, lessons, and sometime soon, and, uh, they, uh, you know, so you, you know, you some a vehicle, and you, you put the two little ones in there, and the vehicle takes them to soccer lessons. Of course, I think that's a totally different business model. That's a totally different vehicle because yeah. you want to you want to be aware of what's going inside that vehicle every second that your, your precious kids are, are in it. Um, you want to also hear what, what what's going on there. You probably want to tell them, hey, settle down, you right. <laughs> good, Johnny. Um, and on and on, you know, uh, mobile gyms, mobile saloons, <laughs> and so on and so forth. So I think it's just...
1: Mobile, s- mobile saloons is awesome. I mean, I was just going to ask about, you know, what kind, what, what kind of emotional relationships are we building with these vehicles? I know people who, you know, love their Corvette in ways that are hard to describe of love of humans, but um, and the, the soccer mom mobilized our minors was great, but saloons takes it to a whole
2: other level. i <laughs> hey, mobile hotel rooms. Um, when we start talking about you know these vehicles being able to drive us and us being productive inside them, we're starting to talk about business opportunities for people that would make short duration flights. Um, that the traveling businessman problem suddenly or travel traveling salesman problem suddenly creates a, a whole new paradigm. If you get to sleep and live in in your vehicle, you know. So we're starting to talk about. Markets would be privacy settings that I could adjust on the windows, adjustable tint on the windows so that people can't see into to what I'm doing. We're talking about, you know, I joke that probably a big market's going to be toilet facilities that, that we can fit inside cars for long duration drives. We're starting to talk about vehicles that are going to be driving around empty. And so as much as we try to increase traffic throughput, if suddenly we have vehicles returning from airports or vehicles that are driving, where we used to aggregate trips. Um, I would pick up my kids at soccer practice, then go to the grocery store, then do something else. If we make the, the transportation cost that much less in terms of our time, then it's very reasonable to, to expect that, you know right now only one of 30 to one of 50 vehicles are on the road at any one time. And if that goes to two out of 30 or two out of 50, we've just doubled the traffic on the road so we could have huge congestion. And, and honestly, we all might not care. Um, the the big markets are going to be for high speed data sharing, um, so that we can remain connected to our home offices on the vehicle, um, you know, connected to each other, uh, virtual reality representations of the world, and while we're in vehicle, these are going to be big things. I mean, vehicle seats that can turn into to beds. Um, we're talking about how do I set up an office in a car such that it's airbag safe? You know, soft features all around the operator. Um, there's gonna be, the, the vehicle of the future may not may look more like a mobile home than it does like, you know, the, the cars that we drive around in and put our children in. Other things are, you know, if that vehicle breaks down, how do we get it off the road quickly? The vehicles are gonna be much more complex and, and much more sensitive to, to errors in the sensors or algorithms. And so if they pull over the side of the road in a safe manner, who's going to get them, especially if, if for example, it's Phoenix, Arizona and grandma's in the, in the vehicle and, you know, she has a choice of stepping outside the vehicle and being in 120 degree weather or staying in the side of the vehicle and being in 120 degree weather and the vehicle shutting itself off, you know, life or death situations start to come up with uh, tow trucks. So, you know, I think an autonomous tow truck rescue system is going to be a huge capability, you know, Tractor trailer driving is going to be suddenly a very attractive field. I think if you allow the, the ability for people to log in or sleep at the at the wheel, so that they're not giving up a home life um, to be on the road, and and these are just the obvious things. Um, I joke with my realtor that the real estate market is going to change a lot when. We don't have to pay this huge surcharge to live right next to where we work. And now we can hop in a vehicle and be productive along the way. In fact, we might want that to live an hour away from our work and you know, get twice the house for half the cost. I, I imagine vehicles becoming houses. And so our identity with that vehicle is suddenly going to become even more pronounced. Um, and we talk about a sports car being an image. Imagine if, if the vehicle is your living room slash bedroom slash entertainment, you know, area slash office all at the same time.
3: I think, uh, although I think, you know, I, I think this pie was big enough for to have many slices. Though, I, I you know, I, I think I agree with everything that we're saying, Sean, I think, yeah, I think there'll be, you know, mobile living rooms, mobile uh, bedrooms, mobile hotels, you know, uh, but I also think that there'll be people that, you know, they don't, they don't want to be attached to the vehicle and they just, you know, want to have different apps for the different experiences that they want to have along the, the journey. But and Simon, I, I also think that you know there is going to be people that want that V eight engine, and they're going to you know be proud of driving that V eight engine. They want to hear that engine, and they're going to run down all those boring autonomous vehicles mm-hmm. on the road, and mm-hmm. do they that have fun sense. doing it. <laughs> <laughs> do do
1: it? I just yeah, missed the distinction in my Saturn. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> nothing special. I liked it.
3: So I, I think it's you know we'll have many slices in this pie for for a long time. Uh, it's just a matter of uh, what we don't know is. When those new pieces of the pie will be born, and how fast they'll grow—that's that's really anyone's guess.
0: Yeah, it just seems like also like Deshawn's like you talked about like like one at fifty to two I guess one out of twenty five cars are being on the road. Then was that due to our our road infrastructure? Right? Is that you know we always hear like every you know, election year our infrastructure is terrible. We need to get it up the up the up the like. And then also, um, you know, um, you know, are we going to invest in better roads? Oh. And, a, and having better roads helps the sensor. I don't know, you guys we speak to that. Like better roads, better like fresh paint for lanes. It helps mm-hmm. the car, self-driving
3: car. Or will we care? I mean, I, 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 last year I talked to a friend who's working at an uh, a company, I'll just say an intelligent shock company, mm-hmm. uh, shock controllers. and mm-hmm. uh, they see an opportunity in automated vehicles where the automated vehicle will have a map. And it will know where the potholes are, where the speed bumps are. And so now can actively dampen those out, which that's engineering speed, meaning you won't feel the bumps. You know, even for poor road conditions. Um, So will that be in every vehicle? No. But, you know, so that could be an argument for we could live with worse roads longer.
0: Well, like they, there's no way that cars would go through New Orleans because every road, every five feet, there's a pile. Like.
2: <laughs> and roads, you know, our meaning of roads might change a lot. Um, you know, when we get into deep penetration levels of, of autonomous vehicles, we're starting to talk about things like negotiated intersections. You know, I look forward to the day when stop signs are a thing of the past because vehicles don't need to stop; they communicate with each other and slow down upon approach to an intersection and on the spot negotiate their way through that intersection without losing any type of fuel. I mean, it, it doesn't take a you know too much effort to sit down and go through the calculations of the fuel cost of an average stop sign. And it's on the order of 10 to $50,000 a year is what we pay for fuel lost by having a stop sign at, at most major roads. And that's something that if we can get that back, then suddenly we're not looking at all these signages out the road. Um, we might end up be looking at virtual billboards everywhere and advertisements that are being sold to us on our our inside uh, windshields. But outside our notion of a road might change. We might not actually need to pave the the whole lane from right to left because we may, through the autonomous vehicles, have designated you know passing areas, and the vehicles could be precise enough to stay on this little concrete rail of of road. And so we might only need, the equivalent of like a, a concrete rail system for these vehicles. And so this, the the opportunities that are out there are just immense, um, both for good and bad. And I, again, I think the theme of all of this discussion is is really trying to learn how to balance that and, and also to introduce the public to it, gain awareness of it, gain acceptance and also some feedback, like what is just a, a non-starter in terms of public opinion. Yeah, I agree with
3: all that, Sean, but I... Think- for me, the you know when for the the piece of it where the, the vehicles are talking to each other or they're talking to the, the intersection, that bit of it that to me that's decades away because um, that requires the vehicles to be talking to each other you know, through the DSRC radios like you we were talking about earlier or the five G communication and 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 for that we would
2: need you know almost near one hundred percent penetration of that technology right. Um, oh, I agree. I think we're probably two or three decades away from, that. but it's the kind of thing where I talk to my kids, like take a lot of pictures of intersections and billboards. People are going to look back at that and that's really going to name the era that we live in today. Um, and and our notion of what lane markers are might disappear. We might just have these QR codes that are painted on on these random signs next to us that designate to the vehicle exactly where it is, where its position is relative to the world, far better than a lane marker might. John, I want you to I want to plug something that you, you've been working on. you know,
3: and, and touch what you were talking about earlier. You know, you were saying that, you know, for when the, the vehicle breaks down, you know, with the vehicles will have a number of redundant systems on board and so it'll know when, when one of those systems has failed, it'll still have enough capability that it can, you know, pull it off to the side and request for help. Um, you know, one of those systems is certainly the, the global positioning system that, that enables the vehicle to, to know where it is. Um, and they're there really isn't a backup for that system, um, and, you know, and that can fail in so many ways, like, you know, in urban canyons in the downtown cities where, you know, the GPS signals can get bounced around and lost, you know, the vehicle you know, can struggle to actually know where it is within, you know, several feet or several meters, um, and there's only one system that I've ever heard of, Sean, that, that could possibly be a backup for that system. That's, this technology that, that you've been working on. I, was, I mean, if you can describe that for folks. For me, that's fascinating. I think there's lots of opportunity there.
2: Yeah, so you know, recognizing that GPS is an Achilles heel for many of these systems, we've been working for about 10 or 15 years now, Paul, and, and you've been a good part of that discussion about developing landmarks um, in sensors that are already on the vehicle. Um, we've done everything from inertial sensing you know, the accelerometers that are in our vehicle or the the gyros that are in our vehicle to measure our spin and balance of the vehicle. Those create fingerprints um, that allow us to to verify where we are on the road and uh, using wheel odometry, we can then predict forward. Um, We've been moving forward with that to visual landmarks. Um, That that capability is something that uh, is quite robust now, particularly, um, uh, you know, Sebastian Thrun, one of the, the early architects for the, the fleet that eventually became the, the, the Google's team, um, they're well known for developing visual ways of of representing the, the world and landmarks and creating maps. And so it's no surprise that the key players in this field are gonna be data providers um, and data management systems because that verification really is gonna take place the same way we as drivers verify. We glance at the road, We've probably driven most roads that we've we've been on hundreds, if not thousands of times. And we can glance at the road and, and verify our situation and then look away and have a conversation. And the reason we can do that is because we keep within ourselves, you know, these roadmaps of, of key features, key decision points, and we're allowed to disengage. And that level of data compression is something that we're learning how to do. We, as you know, all engineers in the field, are learning how to do. But it is something that, that I've been working on for about a decade now. Well,
0: I think this is a good spot to wrap up. So it's been a great, great hour. Look, is, I'm more excited and scared than I was <laughs> an hour ago.
2: <laughs> so. Yeah,
1: I'm still trying to decide what it'll look like at the car dealership.
2: But <laughs> yeah, and I think you know the scared part you know, I would echo back the comments that were made earlier about the potential for lives saved um, in these systems. It's it's quite profound, and that that for me, and I know for Paul as well, and, and almost all of our colleagues. You know, this this has gotten a, to be a really quote sexy field lately, and a lot of attention's given to autonomy. But what's driving a lot of this is the awareness that human decision making is becoming the weak link, and as we get more distracted and more connected and more. Um, Information overloaded on the road. Uh, the idea of leaning on autonomy to help um, is, is shows great promise. I think the thing that we need to think about, though, is what are we giving up? Um, eventually, we're all going to not know how to drive well, at least not compared to the algorithms that are available to us. And as society, we're going to go through a change. And I think thinking through that on the level of you know trying to anticipate what will happen would be you know we're we're now putting together the assembly line for the Model T, you know, back in the 1900s, and we're trying to think about, okay, well, what's urban sprawl? What's smog? What's a traffic jam? And these are all things that didn't exist, you know, in the late 1800s. And uh, so with the promise of mobility and assistance to society, we have to try to think of the secondary and tertiary impacts as well. It's exciting. And so uh, I think uh I'm glad to see so much attention and, and have this opportunity to talk about it because I think it's in our lifetime going to be one of the most profound changes that, that we get to experience.
3: Yeah, I agree. I think it, this has been a fascinating progression. I mean, we, we had the information age, which quickly followed by the information overload age, <laughs> which was quickly followed by the age of distracted driving, which we're in now. And now we're, you know, we're approaching the age of automated vehicles. So it's, it's just Interesting uh, set of uh, directions that we do follow, but I think it's absolutely exciting, it's absolutely fascinating. I mean, we're on the cusp of a, a lot of things happening. I, I mean, when Sean and I were last having dinner, I think you know, the, the, the news, big news articles in, in this field would happen like you know, once a month, once every other month, and now I mean, it's like every week there's significant news and breakthroughs, and from, from all the way from you know, down at the, the sensor level capabilities, the, the the capability and the cost of the sensors um, is the capability is going up, the costs are coming down. It's, it's just impressive. Up to the subsystem level, up to the, the the vehicle technology level, the AI, all the way up to policy. Um, and so it, there's just so much happening. It, it's 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 impossible now. For me to keep up with Sean, uh, you're, you're in it full time. I know. I'm, I'm sure you're struggling with it as well. Um, but just, just uh, yeah. overloaded, overloaded. But uh, but amazing, and, it, it, and it's it's fun. So um, I expect some, and I think here in the next upcoming year, I think uh, you know when, if we have this podcast again in mm-hmm. uh, one one year, would be really interesting to look back. And I think uh, I, I think we'll see a uh, number of milestones being hit.
0: Well, I'm game for being back here in here. You guys are. So. Let's have turkey together, though, oh, next time. How's okay. that? Sounds good. Let's <laughs> get in our autonomous vehicles and get together. There you go. All right. One's with toilets and Wi-Fi. Right. Okay. I'll get on the McDonald's one. Okay. <laughs> okay. Cool. Um, Sean, is there anywhere uh, people online can get... Reach out to you or I'll follow up with you.
2: Yeah, yeah, uh, I'm, I'm available. Uh, my uh, address is sbrennan at psu.edu, s-b-r-e-n-n-a-n at psu.edu. And Paul? Sure, yeah. Um, if you
3: go to um, our website at Mass Robotics, M-A-S-S, uh, robotics, all one word, dot org, massrobotics dot org, you mm-hmm, uh, can find my contact information, but it's uh, Paul S, B-A-U-L-S, at Astrobotics.org. Happy to converse with folks.
2: Cool.
3: Well, thank you so much, gentlemen, for, for being on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for asking me.
2: Well, thank you, Chris.
3: Great seeing you, Sean.
2: Yeah, you too, Paul. We'll have to do dinner again here soon.
3: I look forward to it.